treat today. Um, we purposely began this year to start a series. It's going to take us a few years to get through. Um, but we're asking uh, Mr. Boer from um, Napoleon High School, who's also part of our body here, Craig. Uh, we've asked him, our resident historian, to take us through church history once a quarter. Um, and so he started um, last quarter. We did our first one. This is the last Sunday of this quarter, so we're sneaking it in uh, the very last Sunday of this quarter. Um, before we have Craig come up, just a quick announcement. There is a nursery meeting upstairs right after service, yeah? Fellowship Hall? All right, that's where it's at, so don't forget. Um, and as we're just saying that, man, so many people in this house take care of our kids. Such a cool thing. Um, so for the nursery meeting, thank you. Many people that don't even have kids serve in the nursery just to bless our families. Thank you for doing that. I know Lucas and Sabrina who lead the youth group with their team. They're going to be out all day. They don't even have kids, but they take all this time to bless our kids and create events for them. Lucas and Sabrina, we appreciate you guys. Holly, who runs the nursery. Betty, who runs the kids ministry. And all their leadership teams. Man, what a blessing in this house. So don't forget, they prepared a meeting for you after service for nursery. And if you're interested in serving, even once a year, you can come to that meeting. So church history, part of the reason why we're doing this is how many of you feel sometimes like you are ignorant? Like, I know we came from somewhere, but I don't totally know where. Right? Um, life is a vapor. Maybe you've got 70 or 80 years. Maybe. Right? Um, that's pretty fast considering the history of the world, right? And it doesn't take very long before you realize this isn't our stage. <laughs> we came onto his stage, and we will exit stage right at some point, and he will still be on the stage. God, right? And so it's really important for us to understand what is the meta narrative, What is the story we're a part of? So we can fully take part in that story while we're here. You are not an accident. God formed you in your mother's womb. He made you in his image. He has ordered your steps, and you are meant to leave a footprint. You are on purpose. And so we want to understand that purpose we're made for by understanding the story he's put us in, how we join his story, this greater story. And so we're still very early on. We're in the early church. But hopefully as we go through this series with Craig and once a quarter he comes and gives us the benefit of his wisdom, we understand better how to partner with God. And we understand how rich the story is that we are a part of. Because the church isn't just this building. It's not even a building, right? This is a local church, but there are churches meeting the body of Christ all over the world today. And not just the church that's alive now, but all through history, we are part of the same body. And so he's going to come and help us understand better about that. All right. Nursery meeting after church. I think I can summarize. Make sure you use the wet wipes before you put the new diaper on. That's probably important <laughs> after there. So. Working with the kids. That's a big deal. Having raised five. Bless you. <laughs> um, it's been a while since the last time we talked. So uh, unfortunately, I figured I could need to review a little bit about some of the stuff that we'd come over before, what's going on, what's happening. So. Uh, we spent some time, uh, the last time we met at the end of October, talking about historical concepts. In order to study history, you realize there's certain concepts, there's certain things about history that kind of make it different than, say, science or other things. And, and one of the first things we talked about was something called anachronisms. In fact, we have a slide that might help you remember what an anachronism is. There you go. Kind of looks like George Washington. But that's Donald Trump's hairdo. <laughs> What's an anachronism again? There will be a grade at the end. Anachronism is something out of place in time. And in history, uh, it's important to understand anachronisms. People often place things in the wrong time period. Sometimes on purpose. Like if you're a reenactor, you're dressing up 
like a, maybe a Civil War person or something like that. Or here, uh, comedians use anachronisms all the time. You know, why is the slide funny? Because obviously George Washington and Donald Trump, that's a strange combination of things, right? Uh, but we also tend to do anachronisms like this. We tend to put on, let's say, the early church expectations and ideas that we accept today, and they should have been thinking that way at those times. That's a problem. You can't put anachronisms on people at different times and periods. There's a term we use called zeitgeist, which means spirit of the times. If you're going to study history, if we're going to study the history of the church, we've got to keep in mind the mindset of the people and what they were going through at that time. We would want people to think the same about us, right? The things we do, the things we accept, the things we think are important, at least in part, are because of the culture we live in and the things we've experienced, the things we've gone through. If we would expect others to judge us and look at us in that lens, we have to do the same thing when we look at people in the early church. Remember, they haven't done church before. The closest thing they have is a Jewish synagogue, which is very different than what the Christian church is doing. So if they make mistakes and don't do things quite right, it, we can show some grace. Okay? So, and it's important we keep this in mind because a lot of people will criticize the church and they say that the foundations of the church are flawed. Well, yeah, because they're run by people. In other words, they'll point out how, you know, Onesimus and Book of Philemon, he's a slave, and Christianity encourages slavery. No, it doesn't. There's slavery in the Bible, and there were some slaves who were Christians, maybe even some Christians who owned slaves, but if you use zeitgeist, what was the culture in which those people are living? Slavery is common. Slavery is how things are done. Obviously today, completely unacceptable. But if we'll see here in a second, it's Christianity that eventually destroys slavery in the Roman Empire. It took them time to work through that, though. You know, uh, we certainly can understand that if someone, you know, like Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and it was normal for tax collectors to take too much money and rob from people. It took Zacchaeus becoming a follower of Christ to recognize that was wrong. And, and that process, we certainly know in our own lives. We've accepted Christ, and yet there's sometimes things from our old life that we struggle with. That's what I mean by zeitgeist. This doesn't mean that the unacceptable becomes acceptable, but the unacceptable becomes understood. I can understand why they might have been this way. In, in our mindset of 2020, it's completely impossible to understand how anyone would have a slave. It seems so foreign. But trust me. If those people could rise from the dead and look at our lives today, they would be able to find a few things. They'd be able to find a few things they'd look at and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? This is bizarre. You people have lost your minds, you know? So be aware. Every generation can condemn the other generations, okay? It's just, it's part of history is recognizing that, okay? So be careful. Uh, perspective. We mentioned how perspective is a huge part of history. It helps us to understand why things are the way they are. Why we tend to have muted colors in the building here today versus burnt orange. <laughs> when I was a kid in the 1970s, the church was burnt orange because burnt orange was cool. But if there was burnt orange carpet and burnt orange chairs, I'd put people off. Uh, empathy. One of the most important things about history, remember, is that we need to be able to gain empathy for people and what they go through. I can help to understand other people's suffering. helps me to understand my situation a little bit better, right? If you can't practice empathy, then that's kind of a basic Christian concept. And gratitude. But there's a few things we're going to focus on today that I want to make sure we keep bringing up, and that is the idea of determinism versus individualism. We'll see this a little bit today. Determinism is things were going to happen because they were going to happen. Certain, you know, once someone invents a cell phone, and once you have the internet, certain things are going to take place that are going to affect the church. You can't avoid that. Okay? The church is going to be impacted by social media. But then there's individualism, which is, okay, so society is moving in a certain direction, but people have control over that. Christians create websites in that social media domain, some of which promote the gospel, some of which maybe don't do a lot of help for the gospel. You know what I'm saying? Individuals have a huge impact on how the determinism turns out. Change and continuity. Things are constantly changing, and yet at the same time, there's things that are remain. You're, as, as, a, as a student of history, what you're trying to evaluate is what's new and what's the same. What should we keep? What should we get rid of? 
burnt orange chairs. Okay? And then you need to also realize, and this is very hard for Americans, because our history as Americans are, we tend to be utopians. We tend to expect perfection. We tend to expect things work all the time, because we live in a very high expectation society. Things tend to work and tend to flow well. I know you don't think that because we're Americans and we're very hard on ourselves, and 99% is a total failure. But trust me, compared to most societies, things in the society work really, really well. Well, what's the problem with that? You know, even when good things are going on, we're not happy because that's a cultural thing about our society. You know, I'm, boy, I don't want to get political, but it is interesting to me that every four years, regardless of who's running for office, you would think this was the worst country on the face of the earth. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. I've not traveled a lot around the world, but I've traveled a little bit around the world, and certainly America has problems. I would never try to say that, but wow, it doesn't ever seem like the country they describe. Of course, if you're out of power, you have to tell everyone the country's terrible because that's how you get elected, I guess. But just realize, as, as a culture, it's one of the things we do. We tend to not see that, look, even when terrible things are happening, there's good that's happening in that. And of course, that's because God is active in the world. Right. And, and even when there's good things, there's bad things that occur because the world hasn't been redeemed yet. So evil's at work in the world. So realize there's this contradictory contrast going on in all these historical events. You need to understand this because it's very easy to get jaded and disillusioned. It's very easy to get disillusioned with the church because the church has these high ideals. We're mission to save the world and make everything better, and yet we fail so miserably sometimes. Well, yeah. And sometimes when things seem impossible, something miraculous comes out of it. Yeah. So you can't be an American perfectionist if you're going to study history, okay? It's, it's, you're just going to have to put that part of our culture aside a little bit when we look at these things, okay? Yes, there's going to be problems. Uh, what did we say about the early church? We, we pointed out uh, in the Bible and in the, early in the New Testament that Jesus is the foundation of the church. Yeah. If, the, if what we're doing isn't rooted in Jesus and what he said, then we're probably in error. Okay, we're probably messing up. So Jesus is the foundation of the church. What else do we set up? That the church is a corporate body, that the many of us are one body. That's a big deal because what's one of the popular things? Zeitgeist. What's one of the spirit of the times today? I'm going to do church by myself. I don't need anybody else. In fact, trying to work with other people harms my Christian walk because they're messed up and they have problems and they... They, they make me disillusioned, so I can't follow God and work with other people. Well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but that's in error. Right. It's wrong. Yeah. We are called as Christians to work together in a community. And I just got done saying, it's going to be a mess. It won't be clean. But we're a corporate body. Jesus called on this. If, you know, there's a, there's a logical progression here. If Jesus is the foundation of the church, and we're studying what Jesus said, then Jesus said we need to work together as a community. Well, I guess that kind of settles that. And then we mentioned how the church really got going at the moment of Pentecost, where Peter comes out and 5,000 people are saved on the first day. Well, 4,000, sorry, 4,000. 3,000. 3,000, sorry. Yeah. Minor errors, right? 3,000 on the first day. But, but the church spreads immediately, which, of course, creates a problem. You have to disciple these people. You have to teach them the teachings of Christ. We mentioned how there's persecution. And don't forget, the original persecution of the church came from the same people who persecuted Jesus. It's the Jewish leaders. They thought they had killed the ideas that Jesus was pushing when they crucified Jesus. And then, to their horror, it's spreading even faster than it was when Jesus was alive. And early on, Christians had to deal with a basic problem that comes with persecution, and that is bitterness. How do you deal with the fact that I'm working for Christ and I'm trying to do what's right, and yet my wife was killed, my son was killed by those people? Good and bad occur at the same time. What happens? The biggest persecutor, the biggest murderer is Paul. What does God do? He confronts Paul. And Paul becomes the greatest apostle promoting the spread of Jesus Christ. That's why we have to think differently as Christians. 
That's why we have to recognize that anything is possible because no matter how dark things seem in the world, the good is active in all those things. So that's kind of where we were last time, right? Okay. Where are we going now? Well, today's concept is one body, two peoples. One body, two peoples. So, so the church is one body, but at the beginning of the church, there was a problem. The real confrontation they had to deal with was that there's two groups of Christians, two people of Christians. See, the first people who were saved are Jews. They're Jewish. They're circumcised. They follow all the rules of the Jewish religion, which makes sense because the Old Testament had promised that there would be a Messiah, right? Who was the Messiah if you're a Jew, if you're a believing Jew? Yay, Jesus. Jesus came. The Old Testament is fulfilled. Still a Jew. In fact, I'm a really good Jew. I actually am one of the few that figured it out. And then something terrible happens. Something beyond belief that's often happens. People who aren't Jews also become followers of Jesus. From what you may know about the Bible and the church and the Old Testament, Jews aren't like everybody else, are they? In fact, Jews have a word for everyone who's not Jewish. They call them Gentiles. They're Gentiles, the uncircumcised. What in the world should we do with all of these Gentiles that are joining the church? Well, here's where Paul comes in. Remember, Paul is half Jewish half Roman. He lived in both worlds. He's Jewish, but he can mingle with the Gentiles and talk to them and speak their language. It's almost like God actually raised up someone who could live in both worlds for some reason. That's like a, wow, is it an accident? What did Paul say in this controversy? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul made it really clear. This new message of Christ was for everyone. Maybe the Jews first, but eventually to the Gentiles. Jesus had already been saying this earlier, right? He had said, like with the widow who was there asking for, you know, the dogs get scraps, and Jesus like, look, I'm here for the Jews right now. But there's always this implication that, and when Jesus leaves, Jerusalem, Judea, the outermost parts of the earth. It's simply fulfillment of what Jesus had already said. Of course, as typical humans, even though Jesus had made it very clear that he had a global vision, when it actually starts to happen, people get upset. Because that's, that's who people are. So let's look at the historical circumstances here. What's going on? Jews were numerous in the Roman Empire. It's estimated that Jews might have been as much as 7% of the entire population of the Roman Empire haven't had the Holocaust yet. There's a lot more Jews back in those days. How do we know Jews were all over the Roman Empire? Think about what you know in the New Testament. What's Paul doing? He's traveling all over the Roman Empire, at least the eastern half, right? And what happens when he goes to Ephesus and Thessalonica and these other places? He's spreading the word of God, right? But did you notice in almost all those places where Paul goes, who opposes him in those towns? Jews. There's Jews in Ephesus. There's Jews in Athens. There's Jews in all these cities. There's synagogues in all these cities. Here's the thing. There were a lot of people who were aware of the Jews. They were called God-fearers. They feared God. They recognized that the message of the Bible was true. Except for one small problem. If they really wanted to be full-blown believers, Jews, they had to be circumcised. And for some strange reason, that was an impediment for a lot of them. <laughs> they struggle with that concept. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's a problem here. This might, be, this might be a challenge. But the Bible dealt with this. How does God deal with this dilemma? That as Jews, you were supposed to make a physical sacrifice to set yourself apart and make yourself different. But now it's about the message of Christ. What happens? Acts 15. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. I love this. This is actually wonderful. Who are the people claiming that the Gentiles have to be circumcised if they want to become followers? 
the Pharisees stood up and said. See, I think it's good the Pharisees are the ones who are doing it because they're, they're wrong all the time just about. Well, they believe in the resurrection, so that's a good thing. Other than that, they're always off, aren't they? Those are the same people who pestered Jesus. The rule followers, right? But now there's a new rule. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. Notice who is meeting to consider the question. There is no Springfield, Missouri yet. How could the church possibly survive without Springfield, Missouri? If you're in the Assemblies of God, it's kind of a joke because, of course, our headquarters is in Springfield, Missouri. So there's often jokes made because we have an organization, don't we? What's their organization? Well, let's, let's get the apostles and the leaders around, the elders. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God made a choice among you that the Gentiles would believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. These Gentiles are getting filled with the Holy Spirit. They must be saved. They haven't been physically circumcised, and yet they're speaking in tongues. Hmm. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. Continuity and change. In today's society, we are not debating whether or not you have to be circumcised to follow Christ. But what is the same today? What yokes do we place on people? Oh, you want to serve Jesus? Can't wear sandals in church. Can't wear flip-flops. I'm wearing shoes today. I'm teasing, but we put yokes, don't we? We put yokes on people. It's easy to put yokes on people when you're a believer. Things that we expect to see. Physical signs. Another thing that had to change is the dietary requirements. The Jewish faith, uh, there's all kinds of things you can't eat. You can't eat shrimp if you're a Jew. You can't eat lobster. You can't eat pork. Well, clearly this is wrong. <laughs> what happens? Peter shows up, about noon the following day as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all the kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. It is hard to describe the joy that I have, knowing that the dietary laws are no longer in effect. Continuity and change. Those old Jewish laws aren't necessary anymore. Now, I know from personal experience, though, are there some Christians who put it upon themselves to continue those old Jewish laws? Using fake bacon in their casseroles and things? Yeah. Well, you know what? If you want to do that, Paul does address that later, right? If something is a sin for you, then guess what? It's a sin. If the meat was sacrificed to idols and you've got a problem with that, then you better not eat it. If you don't have a problem with it, get some A1 steak sauce. <laughs> but what did Paul say? If you're with someone and that person believes that the meat sacrificed to idols is wrong, should you be eating the steak in front of them? No, you don't be a stumbling block to them. That's your rule. You can make up as many tough rules as you want. You can be Amish if you want. That's the Amish, right? You got a whole bunch of rules. 
I don't want to be Amish. Am I supposed to mock and tease the Amish and give them a hard time because that's the standard they've chosen for themselves? No. But do I have to live in guilt if I choose to drive a car? I don't have to be guilty about that. So, hmm. So what happened here historically? Well, the Christian faith spreads dramatically all over the place. Uh, There were Jews in the Roman Empire, and through those Jews, many became Christians, and then those Jewish Christians began to bring in Gentiles. Look at that. So if you're not familiar, Israel is, you see Jerusalem kind of on the eastern side of the Mediterranean there. It's in purple. The purple areas are where the faith spread first, and then it moved into those green areas, and then eventually it moved all over that area that you see there. All became Christian. That's an area about the size of the United States of America. In a time before modern highways and jet airplanes, and notice this process happened over a period of just a couple centuries, changing people. It went from India in the east all the way to Britain in the west. And there became a new group of Christians who made arguments all throughout the Roman Empire, defending the faith. They were known as apologists. They're not saying, I'm sorry, all the time. Apologists were defenders of the faith. These people explained the Gospels in ways that people in the Roman Empire could understand. And you should know something about those purple and green areas. The church was most successful where? in urban city areas. The big cities is where it would spread the fastest. And guess which people in the big cities tended to follow? People who spoke Greek. In the Roman Empire, there was two main languages. There was Latin and there was Greek. The upper crust elites spoke Latin. The common folk, the slaves, spoke Greek. Guess which group becomes the first set of Christians? The Greek speakers, the slaves, the poor, the working class, the losers. Change of continuity. Why would it be almost predictable that Jesus' message spreads to the losers in Roman society first? What did Jesus spend his whole ministry saying? The last will be first. First will be last. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, become the least in the kingdom. Well, how does that help me today in 2020? Okay, we're called to spread the word. I would suspect in 2020, which people in our society are probably the most open to hearing the word of God? That's not to say I don't talk to people who are successful and powerful. Let's be honest. Who's going to be most open to the message of Christ probably, based upon what I can see in history? The downtrodden, the people who feel need, the people who know that their lives are difficult. Again, this doesn't mean that I ignore those people who live in the nice neighborhoods and the nice homes, but very often for Christians, I think as people, we tend to have it backwards, right? Oh, if I could just get this superstar to become a Christian. And that would, it is amazing. You know, the the Tebos of the world have a huge impact on the culture. I'll take as many as I can get. But the reality is, Jesus' teachings are true. The great upheaval comes from the bottom. These are the people willing to seek change. These are the people willing to try out new ideas. By the way, it works both ways. When you have unhealthy things happening in a society, unhealthy ideas, those tend to come from the bottom also. That's where a lot of the spiritual warfare is taking place, right? Who's going to win that fight for the least? Because the least will eventually become the most powerful. Hmm. <clears throat> Over time, it became Latin and upper class as it became more acceptable. By the third century, Christianity had pretty much taken over Rome. So the question is, why was Christianity successful? And there's a couple of things we should keep in mind. The single biggest reason Christianity was successful then, continuity and change, the same reason Christianity is successful today is the message of Jesus Christ. I was in condemnation, but now I've heard the truth and I can be set free from that condemnation. His blood has paid for my sins. We have an entire world knowing that they're going to hell and dying. Even if they don't hear the message, they know that their lives aren't what they should be. They've got a hole in their heart. 
which only Jesus' message can fill. So never underestimate the power of that. But there are some other historical circumstances. Uh, Roman culture was a Stoic culture. Stoicism was a philosophy. You know, um, don't show emotion. Show restraint. Don't give in to your desire to just go crazy and party all the time. You know, to manage this huge empire requires effort and hard work, which, by the way, is true. But what is Stoicism? It's just another way of following a set of rules and tough organization. I'm going to do it all on my own. Stoics are open to the message of Christ because Stoics know that there's those parts of them that can't toughen it out, isn't working. Jesus liberates us from this. Christian love. See how they love one another. That impressed the Romans. Rome was a cruel society. They treat the lower classes harshly. The poor are left to suffer on their own as best they can. And ironically, one of the things culturally for them that was a big deal was burials. Rome had all kinds of rules about burials and how you were buried and where you'd be buried. And it cost a lot of money and families would spend fortunes, unbelievable fortunes, putting up huge headstones and monuments to their dead family members. But if you were poor, you didn't have any of that you'd be thrown outside the city for the dogs and animals to tear up. And that really bothered people in that culture. Guess what the Christians do? One of the big charitable acts Christians did was like, oh, they fed the poor. You know what was one of the big Christian things they did? They buried the poor. They buried themselves, and they made sure that poor people had a place to be buried. The comfort that that gave people. What's the continuity? Where are things in our society that people are paranoid and afraid of? Wasn't there a church in Missouri a few weeks ago? I think I saw they paid medical bills for people in their community. You know, what's one of the ways that your Christian love can really affect people? I'm not going to say you have to pay people's medical bills per se, but look at those things in our society that people are paranoid and afraid of. That's where, as Christians, you can have the greatest impact in your love. When you meet the needs of people in areas where they are scared, things that people are afraid of, that's where the message of Christ can have a great impact. That's what Christians realized in those days. And of course, persecution. The first martyrs showed up at this time. By the way, the early definition of martyr was witness. As you were being killed, you were witnessing for Christ. After all, that's what Jesus did, right? And in Rome, they loved murdering and killing people. But murdering Christians bothered them because the Christians are like singing to Christ as they're being killed. In fact, we know that for many Romans, as they saw the Christians being killed and saw that witness, they converted to Christ in that moment. Because what did they realize? All of us know we're condemned. All of us know we're condemned. To see someone who's having their life taken away. And for the lost, your life is everything. Think of how hard our world works to avoid death and aging. Not that Christians want to die, but you see them peacefully and happily and calmly accepting death. That will shake up your world. Something has to be true about that. Hmm. Think of the world today. Christians being murdered all over the world. And yet the faith spreads in China. The faith spreads in Africa faster than it does here. The places with the worst persecution have the greatest spread of faith. Because that proves the message is true. Determinism. Certain things were simply going to happen in our favor. And you could debate if God purposely set it up this way or not, but it just happened to be there at the right time and place. And of course, we're talking about Rome. Romans have roads. They have a bunch of roads. In fact, there's a slide that shows a bunch of roads. Look at all those lines across there. The Roman Empire, to manage itself, set up a whole list of, of, of roads to communicate and march their armies. Guess who's able to walk up and down those roads? Thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of roads spreading the gospel of Christ. Determinism, individualism. Determinism, there's a whole set of roads to spread the message of Christ individualism. Someone had to get up and walk down those roads. 
and go down to the next town. So yeah, the roads were in place for the spread of God's message, but individuals started to go up and do it. Follow? There was a thing called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. During this Christian growth, for 200 years, Rome ruled that whole area. Rome was at peace. You could travel almost anywhere without being afraid of being attacked or taken down. It was prosperous. This aids the spread of Christianity. And then there's the Roman army. Roman soldiers in those days would be posted in different parts of the empire. And you might be in Britain one year, and a couple years later, you're down in Egypt. And a couple years later, you're over in North Africa following those roads. And those Roman, Christ, those Roman troops may become Christians. Guess what this evil Roman army that conquers the world ends up doing? Converted Roman soldiers spread the message. It's almost like God works things to good, right? For those who serve him. God doesn't want Roman soldiers to start conquering people. But hey, you know, if I can convert these people, they'll spread my word. Look at the Roman roads. There's a slide that shows those. Look at that. That's today. We live in Michigan. <laughs> that road is 2,000 years old. And it's in good shape. I think there's lessons there. They're doing something right. They don't have potholes. I know our governor is really focused on that. You've seen the ads, you've heard all the whole things about fixing the roads. I think she's a little bit confused. Beaver dams are not roads. She keeps using the phrase, oh, she's mentioned that yeah, damn, damn roads. I don't know. Okay, so. Michigan could learn from the Romans. So, what was the policy of the Romans towards the church? The Romans were originally tolerant towards the religions, they were. Pretty much the Romans will let you, at first they don't bother Christians. You know, there's the image of Christians. But at first the Romans are like, eh. Except for one small problem. The Romans thought the Christians were just Jews because there was a lot of confusion over this. They seemed like Jews. And the Romans had made a deal with the Jews. As long as you just did your Jewish thing, we'll leave you alone. But Christians aren't, were different than Jews. And here's the problem. Christians spread their faith. See, part of the reason Jesus had to come to earth is that the Jews were supposed to spread the faith of God to all peoples, and they were kind of lousy at it, right? They, they had all these rules and regulations that kept people out. Well, now the Christians are like, hey, you don't have to be circumcised. Boom, everyone's joining. <laughs> There's a problem here. Romans don't want this other faith taking over their faith, and this starts to cause the persecution. Christians are different. They're not part of the culture. They reject the Roman gods. They reject gladiator fights. They reject all the violent games that Romans loved. But those things were social glue that held the Roman Empire together. They don't go to the temples and sacrifice to the gods. They don't like to practice slavery. And the Christians who did continue to own slaves were nice to their slaves and didn't beat them. Christians valued life. They didn't favor executions and murders. Christians had all kinds of weird rules about sexual behavior, like you should be faithful to your wife. What is wrong with these people? Hmm. The real persecution began under Nero. There was a great fire in Rome, and Nero was blamed for the fire. So Nero blamed the Christians. And that's when you began to see the persecution that we often think of. If you look at the slide, he even used Christians as candles. If you look up in the right corner there, you have Christians tied up to poles. You have an audience there watching, and Nero would set them ablaze. They'd pour oil over their bodies and burn them alive. And even though Nero did that to those early Christians, the faith spread even faster. Christians were slandered. Does that sound familiar? Things were said about Christians that weren't true. Because Christians greet each other with a holy kiss, Romans claimed that Christians practiced orgies. Christians often met in secret at night because they were persecuted. That freaked Romans out. They believed we did cannibalism. We just took communion. Romans would spread messages that Christians were taking small infants and eating them as the body of Christ. And they were drinking blood because it says, you're, you know, this is my 
body. This is my blood. We didn't go to feasts. Feasts were a huge social event. They'd have feasts all the time, several, many times a year. They'd have their big public parties. Everyone gets drunk and serves their gods. Christians stay home. They're not causing trouble. They're just not participating in all the social activities the society does. And for that reason, Christians become hated. Caesar is Lord. You're supposed to worship Caesar and give offerings to Caesar. Christians won't do that. They're not causing trouble. They're not stealing. They're not doing those things, but they won't participate. They won't go along with what they know is wrong in the general society. What did John say? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. That's what the Romans hate. The Christians are a living witness of the truth of God. And you can't keep going to the gladiator matches and yelling for the death of people when there are Christians who are peaceful and showing a different way. You can't beat your slaves when you see Christians freeing their slaves or being kind to their slaves. Hmm. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they've seen. And yet they have both hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Folks, they're going to hate you without reason. Continuity. Some things don't change. Romans 12. How do we deal with this? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What's my true and proper worship? To be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Oh, it's not all about me? No. See, this is an American thing that other Christians would look at and say, look at our culture and say, why are you guys having this religion, this, this faith that's all about you? Paul made it really clear. We're a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 1 John 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Why did the church go through that early period of trouble? They simply refused to conform to the world that they lived in. They had no constitutional rights. They had no freedom of religion. They had no freedom of speech. All the freedoms we enjoy as American Christians, they didn't have. And yet they served God anyway. They had no cultural support for their faith. The war on Christmas was real in those days. <laughs> That's a real war on Christmas, right? Christians celebrate Christmas and guess what? The stores weren't having 50% off sales. You got to be careful. Because there's a temptation to conform to the world. In fact, when I was a kid in the 80s, there was a thing, a group. Striper. Striper. Because the world was about the hair bands and the spandex outfits and the screaming and yelling. And then you had Striper. And we wonder why bumblebees and bees are disappearing from the world. I'm not, I'm teasing. I mean, if you like Striper, you're probably not going to, probably not going to hell. I'm teasing. They wore makeup. I don't know. No, what am I trying to say? 
conform, you don't conform to the world. What's the dilemma we have here? Paul's made it very, very clear. We're a wolf, we are a sheep in, in, in clothing. We appear like everyone else, but we're not. I will be all things to all men that they might know Christ. How far do you go with that? That's where you need discernment. You know, we're all wearing blue jeans and T-shirts or whatever. We're conforming to the world on some level. We're not Amish. We're not walking around in Amish outfits. That's the choice they made. But how far do you go? At what point is your witness compromised? That's where we need to come together as a body. This is another reason you need a church. You need a church because if you're trying to make these decisions on how do I separate myself from the world to be a living sacrifice, you're not going to be able to do that on your own. You need brothers and sisters in Christ who can be around you and hold you up and hold you accountable. Otherwise, at some point, the world will no longer be able to see that you're different from them at all. And it's going to be uncomfortable because if you're an American and you're going to live different like the early church did, you will face persecution. And let's be honest, I think American Christians are kind of nervous because I think there's a growing realization as our society becomes more and more and more secular. The days are coming when that First Amendment stuff isn't going to matter. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm not saying that to worry you, but what did you expect? The early church didn't have that. In fact, Christ says over and over again, you're going to be like me. I think what we should do is be thankful. As Americans, we have a unique opportunity to use what we have at this moment to spread the word even faster. The freedom we have as Americans right now is our road network. And the Christian church in America puts more money into missions and spreading the gospel than any other church in the world. And that's why we're blessed. So dedicate yourself to this body here and to the spread of the gospel. And dedicate yourself to be a living sacrifice as those early church people. Once again, not to condemn us, but realize when you feel resistance, when you feel pressure to give in to the values that our world is pushing, it's okay. It's perfectly normal. And those people are just yelling loud like a, like a lion roaring, seeking who they would devour. But what are they really looking for? They're looking for what's real. And you have what's real. With this body that you're a part of, you're powerful. You have the ability to change this community in a meaningful way. And never forget that. And I think that's a good lesson we can learn from those early Christians in the days, you know, we look at sometimes the sacrifice, oh, we couldn't do that. Yes, you can. You do it every day. Maybe you're not being thrown to the lions, but every day you take a stand for what you know is right in your workplace. Every time you take a stand for what's right in your school that you're in and the people that you're around, when you're out with your friends, you're making the same kind of a stand they did because you're different. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And that's the church history for this time that I think we need to be aware of. Rachel, we're going to come forward and ministry team. Sorry. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and stand? It's so good. I know it's a lot to think about, but let's just position our hearts to receive and to hear the Holy Spirit. I think all of us face different challenges in our culture right now, but God has placed you where you are for a reason. Your steps have been ordered to the Lord. You are light and darkness. And sometimes we feel like, man, I wish you'd play somebody else here, someone who knew more, somebody who's better at being light and darkness. But the fact is, if you're there, he trusts you. The fact is, if you're the one who's in that situation, in that workplace, in that neighborhood, in that family, if you're the one there, that means his plan is to work through you. Um, so we're going to take some time just to respond to the Lord. Um, I know in a room this size, people come with all kinds of needs in the room. Maybe um, some are sick in body and need prayer. Maybe there's situations you've walked in with you'd like to join with someone in prayer. There's going to be prayer folks here in front on both sides who can pray with you. Sometimes there's folks back in the alcove too that can pray with you. Uh, but folks are available to pray with you. Um, but let's take some time with the Holy Spirit work in our hearts. There's a challenge in the Word today as we look at the early church um, and we see parallels, continuity, and change. And it looks different for each one of us.
let's let the Holy Spirit speak now. What does this mean for you? What does this mean about how you live? What does this mean about what he's called you to? So if you need prayer, you can come receive prayer. Also, every single believer in the house has the kingdom without measure. So you can pray with any believer near you too. But let's take time to minister to one another and to respond to God and worship before we go. Amen. Sing a little louder. 
in the middle of the storm oh, louder and louder you're gonna hear my praises roar up from the ashes hope will arise death is defeated the king is alive i'm gonna sing i'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm louder and louder you're gonna hear my praises roar up from the ashes hope will arise death is defeated the king is alive i raise i raise a hallelujah oh i raise i raise a hallelujah i will raise it up i raise a give you our hallelujah we join with the heavens and sing up we give it all to you come on would you pour out your praise pour out your praise on my weapon is a melody louder than the unbelief Is our God. 
How great Thou 
story of the Bible, that's the end game. His glory is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And he invites us in this age after Christ's resurrection to join with him to make all things new. And that's what we're headed towards. His glory covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's how it ends. <laughs> that's how it ends. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Christ, that you are victorious over all things. All authority has been given to you, and now you give it to the church to operate with you as ministers of reconciliation, pleading as though God were pleading with the people in front of us, be reconciled to God. <laughs> so good, so good. Would you pray with me before we go today? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and all the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Would you encourage somebody before you go? Hug somebody before you go. Meet someone you don't know before you go. God bless you. Love you.